Hello, everybody. This is Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasper. This is Frank Pelican. You are listening to episode 121, uh, and tonight we are covering the top five horror movies of 1997. Um, we have two more episodes, and we will be complete with the 90s horror list. Um, Frank, a couple weeks ago, we watched Scream 2 for the first time in a long time. Um, you did not initially have that on this list. I assume you were um, uh, uh, happy that you didn't. Yeah, it still wouldn't have made the list, I don't think. Yeah. Well, we neither of us really cared for it. So no, it was um moderately disappointing. I think on a second watch. Yeah. Yeah. Too long, too boring. I mean, not to rehash like the right. episode, but yeah. yeah, just um, I think not what either of us expected it to be. You know, twenty some years past, like having seen it. So. Yeah, and it got way too meta too quick. Oh yeah, and then stayed that way for yeah. the entirety of um entirety of the movie so yeah oh okay so um 97 is not a great year overall like looking at like all the different movies that came out um other the only other couple things i wanted to ask you about was i know what you did last summer what are your feelings on that i mean i think i know what you did last summer is is fine i guess i still don't think it's like a great movie or anything um and really just like a like a poor man's scream i guess in a lot of ways um i like the setting of i know what you did last summer though and like the i need to watch it again like i remember liking the stuff that was in the rain and um the killer being like the archetypical um urban legend you know like the guy in the rain suit kind of a callback to stuff like um like the prowler or uh, my bloody Valentine, or or something similar to that. Um, but it's it's just it's not like a good movie or anything. Right. Super disappointing at the time. I know. Um, not a fan of it, but um, it wasn't something where I felt like I needed to revisit it. There's also there's a lot about what I would consider to be major release horror this year that's also not very good. Yeah. Um, I guess like spurred on by the popularity of screen um like american werewolf in paris is not a good movie um i honestly i thought about putting anaconda on this anaconda on this list at number five just because it's it's fun like it's a super campy movie but it's also not like a good movie necessarily um devil's advocate is this year uh another one that's just not that great um, another one, so a movie that I also really like heavily considered, but I just think that it's not good enough necessarily is The Night Flyer, which is a pretty decent adaptation of a Stephen King short story, but um, suffers from the same like direct-to-video feel that a lot of stuff from around this time had that um, I can't think of the word. Like, not really sanitizes, but it makes it like there's not really a whole lot of interesting elements to it. Although it's got a good performance from uh, Miguel Ferrar in it. Um, and then Wishmaster, I also consider, but at the same time. That's the other one I was going to ask you about, yeah. Like, not as um, not as good, I don't think. And 
Well, I mean, we'll we'll talk through all five of these movies, obviously. Um, but yeah, we Wishmaster not going to make this. So I don't think ever. Yeah, I mean that's really about it. Like everything yeah. else, the five movies on this list are, in my opinion, the five movies that kind of deserve to be on the list. Um, there's a couple. There's a movie called Campfire Tales. It's an anthology movie that I actually owned on VHS. Um, that's just kind of a mediocre uh, anthology film with like not really enough going for it. Like it's just kind of again like a, it's it's sanitized feeling. Um, so yeah, I don't know. This year in '98, I think that the movies that are on there are. Really the only, only the movies that could have made the list. Legitimate options, yeah. 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 Okay. Well, uh, let's go ahead and just just dive right in. There's not like I, like you said, I mean, there's not a lot to talk about either ninety-seven or ninety-eight, much like beyond um the movies that we have on the list. So let's go ahead. Oh, I forgot. Oh. There's also the relic came out this year. Oh another right. another one of those um big budget Hollywood um horror movies that just falls short in like pretty much every every category. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, a that's, that's, a, cast, that's but, a size more movie, right? Yeah. yeah. With um uh whatever you want to call it. Like their awakening ancient evil or whatever. Sure. Or, yeah. All right. So let's go ahead and jump to the number five movie. So number five on your list is Nightwatch. Uh it is directed by Ole Bornadal and stars Ewan McGregor, Nick Nolte, Josh Brolin, Patricia Arquette, Lauren Graham, John C. Riley, Brad Dorff. It has a 28% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a 46% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about the movie and um, uh, why it's on the list? Uh, I think those scores are relatively accurate, probably, um, which again should give you some ideas of the quality of horror films in uh, 1987. Um, the movie is a remake of a 1994 horror movie directed by the same guy, um, that was Dutch. Um, the basic premise is that, uh, Ewan McGregor plays Martin Bells, who is a, um, I guess like soon to graduate law student, um, lives with his long-term girlfriend, uh, his best friend, um, played by Josh Brolin. Um, James, like, right? Is that his name or something like that? Um, is kind of a disaffected. Um, he's also like soon to be college graduate with a long term girlfriend, but he's more, um, piece of shit. I don't know, like apathetic. And, uh, he's got this like really like self destructive sense of ennui about things. So he's constantly trying to like push himself and Martin to do crazy risky things in order to feel alive. Um, Martin takes a job as the night watchman, um, hence the title, at the local morgue slash forensic um, science unit. Um, it's a creepy setting, you know, where always surrounded by corpses, he's alone at night. Um, there's some measure of like construction or something going on where a lot of things are wrapped in um, black plastic bags. Um, which give it a really like unsettling feel. Um, you find out in the opening, uh, the intro to the movie, and then throughout that there's a 
serial killer on the loose who is murdering prostitutes and cutting their eyes out um, through a series of events mostly caused by Josh Brolin's asshole best friend character. Um, Martin Bells comes under suspicion as being like the perpetrator of these crimes, um, even to his girlfriend. Um, but you find out through the course of the movie that it's actually Nick Nolte's um, detective character uh, who at one time worked at the morgue and was fucking the corpses um, as a, I guess, like a man in his early 20s, but then became a police detective because he was never prosecuted. And so no one knew that he did it. Um, he's the one that's uh, committing the murders. Um, so that's pretty much the gist of the movie. Uh, there's a lot of things that don't work in this movie and it's honestly um reading the history of it because it didn't test well at first um the initial the initial version of the movie which was much more in line with the 1994 danish version um which was more involved in the psychology of um the characters and just like the what is it called like abnormal psychology of the killer um, and a lot of things that were really like developed the characters well, according to McGregor, were cut and reshot, um, in lieu of just more graphic death, basically, to make it more of a traditional horror movie. Um, the opening scene is a first person, um, basically a ripoff of that movie, that Argento movie that we watched. Um, it's been a minute now since we saw that movie, but the one with um, uh, the guy yeah. that cuts cuts the heads off. I yeah, what it is. Yeah, um, I know which one it is. Not that. But basically, a, a sort of a rip off of that. So you see the killer like following this prostitute into her home and then murdering her, and it's really disjointed with the rest of the movie. And because it was filmed by completely different people and without the knowledge of the director, um. So just a lot of things that don't work because like the Steven Dorff character um, or Brad Dorff, I'm sorry, um, isn't really explored at all. Like, and I think he had a larger role in the original cut of the film. Um, Nick Nolte becomes kind of just this like half realized villain who's just sort of there. Yeah. And it, they reveal to you that he's the villain in this like almost like throwaway fashion where they've given you no indication that it's this guy aside from the fact that he's just kind of a creep. And then all of a sudden in like one very casual scene, it's like, oh, here he is. Like he's a murderer. Surprise. Yeah. Uh, which really kind of drains a lot of the um, impact from the rest of the movie, like knowing that it's him. Um, because then, and also because they take Martin and his girlfriend and make them just like victims basically like there's no um right jane the the pizza shit james becomes the protagonist yeah, Brolin yeah. becomes a protagonist in the last 20 minutes of the movie yeah where um uh ewan mcgregor and uh, patricia arquette are just both tied up and basically reduced to nothing characters yeah. um so really weird decisions in the movie um the reason I made the list for the most part is number one, this is I think a clear illustration of why like when we and 
maybe part of this is just nostalgia on our part, but like why we come back to the 90s so much because this is like a throwaway horror movie that made no money and was basically forgotten as soon as it was out in theaters and has like really an all-star cast if you look at like the amount of talent yeah. that's on screen. Like even somebody like Lauren Graham who would go a few years later to, you know, achieve pretty um, pretty wide recognition and acclaim for her portrayal of uh, Lorelai Gilmore and the Gilmore Girls in the movie for what, 10 minutes total of screen time maybe? Something like that, yeah. But you know, her, um, Dorf, Roland, uh, John C. Riley mm-hmm. in a... Um, Probably pre Boogie Nights role. Uh, probably, yeah, yeah. I have to um, look, at the, look at the dates on them, but yeah, you know, Nolte McGregor. I mean, and McGregor was like on the cusp of becoming a major star at this point. Um, still a few years away from you know joining the Star Wars universe, but had been had gotten acclaim for stuff like Shallow Grave and um, Train Spotting and would make uh, Life Less Ordinary um, the same year and something else he was in that came in this year, came out this year as well. But just like an all-star cast, um, which is crazy for such just a generic, like bland genre film. Um, This movie also had one of the greatest trailers of the year. Like it looked, because the the director has a, a decent visual style. Like he, he has a good feel for how things should look. And some of the things that he films, especially like the exterior shots with the, it's, it's, it's very Argento-esque. So it, it really felt like almost like the second coming of Dario Argento, even though Argento was still alive and well, he still is alive, but was still like actively filming movies. I mean, this was, you know, a major release that felt like a really good, solid giallo. And it just becomes a mess because I don't know, like editing and just dicking around with the story and the motivation of the characters and the introduction of, you know, like different plot elements for no reason. Um, the best, the best part of the movie really is, is the performances yeah. for most people. Um, some really uncomfortable scenes, especially with Brolin when you're meant to believe that he's the killer um, for the first half to two thirds of the movie. Mm-hmm. And that really is where the movie is let down just by its editing choices. It's like, cause you never really gain any concern for any of these characters throughout the, like the majority of the film, because it's just so haphazard the way that they introduce motivation and try and build like your sense of connection to them because it's just not well done. Yeah. That, once you realize who the killer is, like there's no stakes at all anymore and no tension. Agreed. I mean, you you know they're gonna get out of it mostly, and you know that he's gonna get his come up and it's just kind of like a slog for the last 25 minutes, just kind of waiting to see like how that yeah how it pans I, out. I had never seen this before. Um and I knew it wasn't as a mystery, it's it's pretty bad. I mean, I, I knew it wasn't gonna be ro- rolling because they were showing their hand too much. Right, yeah, they, they they overplay that so much. And I suspected it was Nolte, like, because you just go through the suspects, like, that are possible, unless it's, like, an unknown 
um, in the movie, which people tend not to do, you go through the suspects. Nolte is like the obvious one that would be the biggest twist. It ends up being right. like Nolte once you've guessed it, and um, and then it's like, okay, <laughs> like yeah, it's unfortunate. Like I didn't really care after that. Um, and then I thought it was really, yeah, really weird. The protagonist of the movie is just a victim at the end and like has, there's no action. There's no dynamic nature to the character at all. Like there's, there's no ending for that character. Sure. He's just a schlub who gets, you know, almost gets killed. Right. It really is like, and so if you would, if, if it would have been directed differently, that could have been, that part of the movie could have actually been pretty awesome when it's like, so, do you remember that movie Angst that we watched a few years ago? The yeah. German uh-huh. movie? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you think about something like that where it's like... Good movie. Just the horror of the idea of people in a random circumstance like being, you know, like at the whim of a killer, basically. Sure. Which is one of the more amazing parts of that movie is just how much it just takes these characters that you're not really introduced to. They're just there because of the circumstance of being in the proximity of the killer and it like, gives you an investment in those characters. And this could have been something similar, you know, just this normal dude who's, you know, a college student trying to make ends meet, like working a part-time job just for some extra cash. And he just happens to be like, unfortunately, like in the path of this guy. I mean, like, I, I think about like something like, cause Baba does a lot of movies like this. Um, Baba and like some Lucio Fulci, like those direct the Italian directors from the seventies, where they would take a story like this, and even though like the dubbing would be awful, like you still would get more of an investment in just the like the the creepy like terror of the idea of a serial killer just randomly deciding that you were going to be the one that he's going to target, and like you don't get that here because it's just I don't know. Apparently, they blame Harvey Weinstein for those editing decisions, um, which I think is funny because I feel like of all the, I mean, for all the terrible things that we found out about Weinstein in the interim, like Miramax and Dimension as production studios tended to just kind of let things go and let creators, you know, provide their own vision for things. To see a movie come out, a movie come out of that studio and just be a complete shit show because of you know tinkering by the studios. Well, that's a that's a theme because the next movie has the exact same problem uh, on on your list, but um, with interference from the Weinstein's. Other problems. Sure. Um, just to follow up on a couple of things, uh, Tanabre is what you were talking about, I think, in terms of the beginning of the movie. Well, it happens. It happens in Tanabre, but it happens in um. What is the other one? I, I can't remember. There's another one that we watched that you mm-hmm. need. Okay. Well, that's like five seven. But okay. Right. Um, right. Um. Yeah, I'm not sure which one it would be then. Um. <clears throat> but um. And yes, uh, the uh, the John C. Riley uh role, the Boogie Nights came out like five months after this, so this was pre Boogie Nights. Um. Yeah. Uh, what's interesting here is like they brought in Sally uh, Menke to do the editing. I don't know if you noticed for this movie, mm. um, which um, 
so not only like the cast, like an all-star cast, but it's like, you know, you got one of the best editors like of the past, like, you know, you know, 40 years, um, you know, editing this movie together. Um, the, um, the guy that did the cinematography for it, um, who also did the cinematography for Mimic. Oh, oh shit. No, whatever. Uh, for, um, That's fine. For the, because we'll be talking about it soon enough, the next movie on the list. Um, but um, he's done all the cinematography for the John Wick movies and um, cinematography for The Shape of Water, a lot of like uh, Del Toro stuff. Um, and for whatever I think about that movie, it's like, it, it looks nice. Um, right. You know, but so yeah, I mean, they have like good people working on this movie and the fact that it became such a clusterfuck is just really bizarre to me. And you're right. I think like this movie isn't very good and overall like as a mystery and um it's kind of you're right it's carried by the performances um which makes you wonder that if there was no interference and um you would have been able to just film the movie you wanted to film are we talking about like a classic of psychological horror from the 90s you know it's sure like just kind of an interesting oddity yeah that sort of has been forgotten i think for 20 some years so yeah, and Soderbergh co-wrote this with um, Bernadette. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's so it's, many things about this movie that should have made it, yeah, like phenomenal. And you just yeah, and I think again, like I wasn't going to bring it up since Jeremy did. Like when we talk about the next movie and Weinstein's interference in that, you know, I, I think it just shows that the man like was probably really problematic a long time before anybody was willing to admit openly in Hollywood how problematic he was. Oh yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And not just like the sexual like molestation and deviancy or whatever, but just I'm being t- a bully and a, yeah. an asshole. Try to remember um, in Entourage, like, isn't he in Entourage? Like, when, when we were watching that, like, isn't Hardy Weinstein in that? I don't remember, honestly. Um, if, I if, he, if, he, if he wasn't in it, then they had a character that represented him in it that was just the complete the biggest douchebag in the world. Like, um, just problematic you know, in every way. What it was similar to, though, like, reading about him over the past, like, five or six years since, you know, the accusations came to light. And, I mean, not even accusations, but, like, his crimes have come to light. And, yeah. um, now reading about this movie and the next movie um, pretty pretty a length over the past few days. You remember, um, I can't remember who was in that show, but there was the show about the agent it had, um, shit, what is his name? It was on Fox. It only ran for, like, a season or two. I think, uh, hmm. I know that Chuck and I watched it, and Zeke, and I think you may have watched it with us. Are you talking Jay, about, huh? It's got Jay, um, fuck, what is his last name? Jay Bruchard, I the the kid from, that's tied in with, the freaks and geeks people and all that kind of stuff. No, nothing. Oh, okay. I have no idea though. I don't know. What well, let's go into let, let's go into the next. <laughs> okay, you're not talking about profit from the '90s, are you? I don't think that's what it was. Called. Okay. Yeah, there was a character named Harvey Weingard um, in Entourage. Is what I'm thinking of. Um, um, played by Maury Chaykin, and yeah, it's a piece of shit. All right, so number four on your list, um, since we'll just kind of use the, the Weinsteins as a, as a segue here, 
is uh, Guillermo del Toro's mimic. It stars Mira Servino, Jeremy Northam, Josh Brolin again, um, Giancarlo Giannini, and Charles S. Dutton. It has a 64% from critics and a 37% from audiences. So reversal again here between audience and critic scores. Um, you want to talk a little about this movie and um, why it's on the list here? So um, another, like, I don't know if lackluster is the right word, but um, a movie that you watch and think, like, what could this movie have been um, by a pretty talented director? Um, Mimic is the story of um, a brilliant scientist played by Mira Sorvino, which automatically, you know, straining the limits of credibility and believability, um, who works with the CDC to create a superbug to kill these cockroaches that are spreading this lethal disease that's killing children at an alarming rate. Um, so they do some DNA manipulation and create these bugs who are supposed to not be able to reproduce and die after one generation. Um, they put them into the uh, sewer system of New York City um, where the bugs succeed in wiping out the cockroaches. Um, and then three years later, uh, there's a rash of deaths in New York, um, and they're being basically committed by these bugs who have gained the ability to reproduce and are murdering people down in the sewers. Um, the bugs have grown to like outlandishly large proportions, so they're the size of like a super tall like human being. And have also gained the ability to um, mimic humans through like arranging their carapace in a way where it looks like they have, you know, they're bipedal and have human features. Um, so after really like a really long time of trying to figure out like what's going on, um, our heroes, um, Sorvino, her boyfriend, um, this what do you think he is like eastern european um shoeshine man and charles dutton are in the sewers and the old they're not sewers but old subway tunnels um basically trying to kill these bugs and in the end they succeed um it's it's a really weird movie because again so here's a here's a uh, interesting not maybe interesting but here's some backstory uh, this is the first film, like actual like film that I put together as a projectionist. Um, when it came out, this was when we opened the um, the Regal Cinemas in Bel Air, Maryland. I was a um, assistant manager there, and this is one of the one of our opening movies. So I put this movie together, um, and I reversed a couple of reels, and nobody caught it for like the opening weekend, like nobody complained or anything mm -hmm. until somebody watched the movie that worked there and said, hey, like, um, or they were watching it for the second time because they had watched it on opening night in another theater, the one that I hadn't put together. And then they watched it and I was like, hey, like, one of those is wrong because it's definitely not like in the right sequence. So how, how many minutes would that be that people just like watch this shit and didn't? think about it or i mean it's it's ultimately like a change of 40 minutes 
Jesus. Because a reel of film is about 20 minutes long, roughly. Um, so if I reverse the fourth and fifth reel, you would have the hundredth yeah. minute would take place before the, you know, right. 60th minute, if sure. that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh-huh. Or 80th minute. Right. Minute, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so pretty, That's... pretty significant. Uh-huh. I actually did the same thing a few years later um, on pre-Thanksgiving weekend. I think Thanksgiving for The Preacher's Wife, mm. the um, Denzel Washington movie. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and somebody came out and was like, yeah, like I was I was like, yeah, th- this movie's getting really artsy because they're telling stuff in flashback. And, <laughs> and then we realized I just put the movie together mm. wrong. Right. Um, so yeah, so Mimic, I think it's actually a really interesting story. Um, I'm a pretty big fan of monster movies in general. Like I like the idea of the um, the unknown creature created by science or like the meddling of man or whatever you want to call it. Um, but unfortunately, the way that this movie comes together is like, I don't ever believe that any of the people that are supposed to be experts in their field know anything about what they're talking about like it doesn't come across as believable and i think part of that problem is trying to get um i mean mira servino who was what mighty aphrodite i guess would have been her like breakout role at this point right i think so um can't think of anything else to star in a film and also what i consider to be the del toro effect which is a man who's a really brilliant director that does not do as well directing people in English. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that if you watch something like Devil's Backbone or Pan's Labyrinth, like, brilliant dude, you know, just amazing visual instincts and really good sense of, like, how to build dread in general and um in a movie. And then you see stuff like this and Blade and Hellboy and it's like, man, like I just don't know that he understands or that he's necessarily like, super talented at this point in his career at, um, you know, directing in, in English. I, I hate to say that because it sounds like super racist, but it's like, what other explanation is there when you look at, or maybe he just feels like he needs to direct differently for an American audience. Like maybe that's the, the difference is the, the, yeah. the idea that like, you need to dumb things down for an American to understand it. Yeah, I mean, because we—I think we talked about this earlier in this uh, earlier this year with these lists. I, I can't—I can't remember the name of the movie right now that you put on of Del Toro's, but um, um, in his native language, and and when we talked about it then, I think like is that it's it's so oh, much. Oh, it's um, Kronos. Kronos, yeah, it's so obvious. Yeah, so obvious. I mean, um, the, the the acting performances end up being better um, around this time in his career and stuff like that, like when he's directing in his native language. Right. But then you read about the interference from the studios, and maybe that's a big part of it, too. Sure. Um, I, I like the design of the bugs. I think that for the most part, um, filming everything in pretty dark, dank environments is a smart decision mm-hmm. because you don't have to let the CGI... Um, hold itself up quite as much or the practical effects like you can kind of just let everything happen and still has a pretty decent sense of tension to it um i think the scene where they're trapped in the old um 
car or whatever train car and the bugs are like assaulting um you know the outside and like tearing through the steel with their talents and stuff has a really good like alien feel to it um and really captures the I'm gonna be honest. That's the, at that point in the movie. That's when I became interested. I, I was bored as shit by the first part. Well, right, up until that, he spends so much time. And again, the problem is, is because none of the none of the principals are believable in their roles. So you're asked to believe that. I mean, like everybody just seems like an idiot. And oh, this is like the most brilliant entomologist on the planet, but. Like, there's nothing that this person says or does that leads you to believe that that statement is true. And that, it, like, that, I think that's a problem with a lot of. And I'll, I'll be honest, I looked up Mira Servino. Um, she had that small role in Beautiful Girls the year before this, but not oh, very, right, right. not very notable in that movie. I mean, she doesn't have a lot of screen time. But what that really doesn't help her is Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion comes out this like just a few months before this, and it's like now it's like she's doing that, and now she's doing this, and it's like. Oof. That's a that's a that's a that's a bridge too far to yeah. Try to... I mean, I think she's fantastic in Mighty Aphrodite. Personally, I've seen her like, in a lot of things that she's really good in. You know, I mean, she's, she's made a career playing kind of like really, and stuff. She's now. really good in Beautiful Girls, honestly. For yeah, like as, for as much as time, yeah. right, as much as I'm not a huge fan of that movie, like her performance is good in it. It's yeah. it, it's honestly, I don't know, it just strains credulity. Or, however you say that word to yeah. believe that like she's the foremost expert on entomology and infectious disease in the world oh well i don't that. i don't even believe the script in in that though like the right, right. even so, beyond her i mean yeah to sort of continue a conversation that we had offline um at one point it's it's almost the opposite of the nolan problem like where nolan becomes so infatuated with experience explaining the minutia of the science like the pseudoscience that he's melded into his movie to make you believe that like that stuff could actually exist like this is the opposite of that where it's like yeah you know we just uh we spliced their dna together right like it was dna right you know there's some dna going on that made them people oh genome everything happens in a controlled environment, can't be controlled in the real environment, right? Like, just believe that's true. Right. So, yeah, they should have just been shouting, like, just, just random buzzwords. Like, that's that's what it felt like, you know. But in spite of that, um, and in spite of the... What do you think that kid is? He's autistic, right? I guess is what you're meant to believe. I believe so. The grandson yeah. of mm-hmm. the... Yeah. yeah. Um, with his Mr. Funny Shoes, which... Like, I don't know. Like, when I was a kid, that completely ruined this movie for me. Um, I think that Del Toro has some things that he does that make the movie look interesting. And I think that the last 30 minutes of the movie do a decent job of building tension. Um, because at one point, you think that Roland's dead. Roland plays the um, rogue, or not rogue, but like, renegade cdc official who's willing to like break all the rules to cure infectious disease right um you think he's dead you think the boyfriend's dead um and it really does like kind of 
build a good Ridley Scott-esque like alien vibe to it, I think. So sure. um, but it takes a long time to get there. Yeah. Um and I wonder like what this movie is if Del Toro is just allowed to make the movie without because apparently Weinstein was super vicious in like his attacks, not like his verbal attacks on Del Toro and tried to fire him and went on set and basically tried to like take over directing the movie at a certain point. It's like, here's a man that's now considered probably one of the five most foremost like directors of. Yeah. I think this is, I think this was Bob actually that interferes in this one. Right. Maybe. They're they're, they're both assholes. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, I, I think if I remember correctly, I I I don't have it pulled up from me. I think it's Servino who saved his job. Yeah, yep, that's right. Yeah. She she appealed to the whatever Weinstein it was to basically yeah. like, hey, like this guy's good and knows what he's doing, just leave him alone and it succeeded. But yeah, I mean I don't know. And it's yeah, funny but- because like I wasn't really much into so we used to get this magazine at the movie theater called Box Office. I think we've talked about this before. Um, and box office was a combination of like movie news, but also exhibitor forecasting. So it would talk about what movies it thought was going to make money. So I would get a lot of my dirt sheet info from that kind of stuff instead of reading like variety or whatever. Um, I don't remember hearing about anything problems with this movie, but again, this is one of those things where it came out and then who remembers it, you know, in the, right. in the preceding years, like, even people that are really big fans of Del Toro, I don't know who's talking about Mimic um, in any capacity. Sure. Sure. Um, and rightly so, probably. But again, this is another movie where, you know, you've got some good principles. Um, the people involved in it were really talented and have gone on to, like, much better things. And it's just one of those, like, you wonder what it could have been if it would have just been left to um, its own devices. And because I, like, I don't know. Like, I think you take away the subplot of the kid, um, Spoon Man kid, like, clacking his friggin' spoons, his hand-boning spoons. Um, like, take that subplot out, because there's some really vicious stuff in this movie. There's these two um, wayward youths that supply bug specimens to Mira Sorvino for cash. Um which is probably the most interesting subplot of the opening part of the movie. Sure. Who get murdered by the mimics down in the subways. Yeah. While they're looking at, again, at Mira Sorvino's behest, they're looking for um, egg sacks to bring back to her to sell, and they end up getting murdered by these friggin' like, man bugs or whatever. Um... But I, I don't know. I mean, I think I enjoyed this movie just as much as I did the first time I saw it, which is to say that I thought there was some decent stuff, and I thought there was some goofy stuff, and I gener- genuinely felt like it wasn't put together in a way that made sense um, to keep the movie interesting. So, but yeah. Yeah, and I don't want to talk about this movie. This, this is probably a more in-depth uh, discussion of Mimic than um than there's ever been done but um, <laughs> on a podcast i would i would figure unless there's like really big del toro fans that are doing it because this is i like the second half of this movie but i just liked it i i thought it was fun to watch but sure. um, it's 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 okay 
it's it's an okay movie. Um, but um, two things I just realized that uh, uh, oh shit, I forgot his name again already. Um, uh, the director of Lice, Bordal, um, Ole Bordal produced this. Yeah. Can you imagine, like, and then I looked up, like, you know, what else has he done? And it's like, he does not do anything in America, it seems, until, like, four or five years ago. No, sorry, 2012. He comes back and finally directs a movie for um, Ghost House um, Productions. And um, it's like... Which, which one is it? What did he direct? Uh, the Possession, that one with Jeffrey Dean Morgan um, and... Uh, oh, shit. Uh, did a, Ky- Kyra Sedgwick. They're, yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, where's dog like the Dibbic box movie? Uh, yep, yep. Yeah, it's it's yeah, okay, it's fine, it's whatever. Yeah, it's not very good, but it's fine. Um, that was one of those movies that, like, because Netflix, like, I watched it like early on in COVID, and then like they changed the box cover, and I was like, What's this movie? I'm gonna watch this, and I started watching it, and I realized, um. I'd already watched it, like, but it took me 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, but I'm actually, I, I own that movie on DVD. Really? Huh. Mm-hmm. It, was, it, was, it was a blind buy. Mm. Gotcha. Like, the trailer was pretty interesting. I think I'd seen it on another DVD I had bought. And I was like, you know what? 12 bucks, I got you. So I do have one question about this movie, just to get your thoughts on something. The critical scores have went down over time. Like initially, right. they were much higher, and then they went down. Why do you think that is? Um, I mean, I would imagine it's more people being interested in Del Toro mm-hmm. and doing like retrospective reviews of yeah. his entire whatever. Right. Especially, um, shit. I mean, he's directed like so much stuff in the past twenty years. Sure. Um, that has like a lot of like quote unquote like geek acclaim to it. Um, so I'd imagine that's why. Yeah, uh, that's what I thought. And, and maybe people comparing his, the quality of his later work, you know, um, to something like this, like um, later American work, I should say. Um, I can so. tell you that at this point in time, like a lot of critics love Del Toro because of um, Kronos. Mm-hmm. Like that was a pretty, pretty well-received critical darling like indie movie when it came out. So it yeah. might just be the whole... I don't know how you want to call it, but people like overselling basically just to prove that their initial thoughts about him were correct or whatever. I don't know. Right. Gotcha. And now that now that there's enough where you can admit that like good directors can still have bad movies, like you can go back and people can be more objective and say, like, hey, like in his, you know, his body of work, this is not one that really stands out. Yeah, maybe I don't know. Yeah, okay. Just wonder. All right, so I want to get to these next three movies because they're all, I think, more interesting. Um, uh, just in terms of like the film itself, as opposed to like the stories behind them. Um, so number three on your list is Cube. It is directed by Vincenzo Natale. It stars Maurice Dean Wint, Nicole DeBoer, Nikki Godagni. The second ever appearance and final appearance of David Hewlett um, of SG One fame, unless somehow we end up doing SG One on the podcast at some point, and if we do that, I'm I want to kill myself. So, um, and then Andrew Miller is the uh, is uh, yeah 
list name 64 percent from critics 76 from audiences um feels like this might be maybe the most well-known on this list to me um but that could be some sort of weird bias um that people have at least heard of this movie um more but um i would i would think it would be the next one but maybe um it's got a lot of indie like yeah it's true um press but um you want to tell us a little bit about the movie and um why it's on the list here um so really the first like good movie on the list um it's a pretty interesting concept so there's a group of one two three four five six people ultimately that are trapped in this structure um that is a series of interlocking rooms that are in the shape of a cube um, the rooms have six exits, you know, so floor ceiling and then the four cardinal directions. Um, and some rooms are booby trapped in a way to be lethal to a person when they enter it, whereas some rooms are safe. So uh, general general concept of the movie is there um, the interpersonal issues that arise between the principal characters. Um, as they try to explore the cube, um, particularly between, um, shit, I can't remember his name. The, Quentin. Yeah, Quentin, Quentin, who's a um, police officer, um, and the doctor Jane? is that her name? Something. Helen. The Helen, who um, is a kind of like pacifist slash um, conspiracy theorist, uh, who believes that. They're in a creation of the industrial military complex or something like right. that. Uh-huh. Um, but still, like it's good performances for the most part, even though some of it's a little overwrought. Um, the characters eventually find out that the cube is um, basically controlled by a pretty um, complex mathematical principle, which I don't understand that involves the the plotting of um, points on a, on a graph, but a three-dimensional plotting. And that's how you can figure out what rooms are going to be safe and what rooms are not going to be, and which ones are leading to the exterior of the queue, which is their goal, um, is to get to the outside. So uh, Quentin kills the doctor at a certain point by basically just like letting her die um, when she's outside the cube trying to see if she can swing to what they find out are a series of other cubes that are adjacent to the one that they're in. Um, everything breaks down. Um, eventually, you find out that one of the guys that's inside the cube is was one of the designers who's been placed there. Um, so finally, in the end, um, it's just Quentin, uh, this autism, or not really autistic. He's more of like a savant, I guess. Yeah. Um, like a mathematical savant that can do really complex prime number calculations in his head. Um, this girl who's a um, math student, another one's kind of like a math prodigy, and the designer guy. Um, Quentin ends up getting crushed inside the cube. Um, and the math girl ends up getting stabbed and killed by Quentin. And the designer guy and her like basically die together at the end. Um, kind of a downer of an ending in that respect. 
Um, they never really reveal exactly what the cube is. It's sort of one of those um, convenient mysteries where the idea is that only you're only designing a small part of it. So sort of the premise of Watchmen, really, and like the Ozymandias' um, alien invader right. scheme huh. and the idea that like if you're only designing a small part of something, um, you never have to know like the terror, like the horror of the whole that what you're designing is going into. So that's that's a pretty interesting concept. Um, the movie looks beautiful and it's like really brilliantly filmed for what amounts to like a one room movie for the most part because all the rooms are the same inherently. Um, from a production standpoint, when they filmed this movie, they only had one fully constructed cube room and like some other ancillary rooms so you could film like from the inside, the outside in to make it seem like it was interlocked. Um, and they would just change the um, the filters and the lighting to make the rooms appear to be different colors and seem like they were different construction. But um, I mean, for being like a really small indie movie, it doesn't feel like a really small indie movie. Like it, it really be. feels like a, like a full-blown like Hollywood production in a lot of ways, which I think is amazing yep. that they're able to pull that off. Um, I think the mystery is really well presented and leaves enough to your imagination where it kind of leaves you wanting to know more about it um, without being like over exposition or whatever. Like it just lets the, the disillusion of these relationships play out in real time. So that becomes kind of your focus and the most interesting part of the movie as opposed to even like, you know, I mean, inherently, it's just kind of like the cheap Hellraiser. Not not cheap. Cheap's not really good, but it's it's sort of just like a basic Hellraiser type story where it's like here's this like torture device that has possibly like otherworldly origins, and can we ever really know, you know, like what's what's at its heart? But it doesn't try and I don't know, like bog it down with religious symbolism or overall like heavy-handed social commentary it kind of just lets everything breathe within the relationship between these people which i think is kind of a brilliant way to to tell that story i think um definitely not like overindulgent from a standpoint of like some individual someone's like the director or the writer's philosophical bent and just lets it just be sure you know like a really interesting concept um it's followed up by two sequels and there's actually a Japanese remake that comes out in a few weeks that I'm super yeah, interested in seeing. Yeah. Um, the sequel to this, Hypercube, is not a good movie at all because it's know. ruined by CGI more than anything. Um, but then the third movie, Cube Origins, maybe is what it's called? Or it something. is. Uh, something like that. Yeah. Um, is more of a callback to this movie. And while not as good, um, sets up the premise a lot better and is is, is pretty interesting. Um, yeah, but also becomes much more of just like a a cube, standard like cube, cube zero. Cube zero, right? Yeah, like, it sounds like a soft drink. Yeah. Um, right, I would drink it. <laughs> um, it makes it more of like like a traditional. Um, I don't want to call it like torture porn, but definitely not the same. Um, interesting like more abstract philosophical meditation than this movie is so um 
when on first blush, I think that it's easy to dismiss this movie sometimes because the acting is a little hammy yeah. at points. But I think that once you get past that, like on subsequent viewings, um, and you really just start to focus on the broader aspect of the, you know, the development of those relations between those characters and just sort of the like waiting for Godot style you know like as we find out more things about people as time goes on like your opinion of people changes and your perspective um yeah and to the point about the acting i mean i just gotta say i don't have a problem with it, it, it honestly the the one the, the the uh the one problem here is maurice dean win um that plays quentin um he he's he's the one that like really just at times just is like really hammy and can't really deliver lines very effectively or anything like that. Um, I think the rest of the cast does a, a pretty good job um, with all these characters. Um, Agreed. I'm just I, saying that that's what I mean because you're focused on Quentin so much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, early on in the movie or in, like throughout the entire movie, really, that it, it can be distracting. But right. once you sort of like figured out who he is and kind of gotten past like that that part of it then it becomes mm-hmm. enjoyable i think agreed this is the third time i've seen this movie and i think probably this was my favorite viewing of it ever yeah like out of all three times yeah I, I don't know if that's true for me like i was really taken by this movie um i guess i probably saw it a couple years after it came out or something like that but um i i really liked it then and i think i watched it like maybe 10 years later and then i was like yeah that stills good i guess like um but i and and then this time it's like i kind of remembered why i really liked it the first time so much like I, I i still really like this movie i'm a big fan of it i think i know like the inspiration came from a twilight zone episode but uh-huh. it, ha- it has that feel to me of a twilight like you know an extended twilight zone episode and i really like that kind of just this idea of like you know they're it's it's very poish to me as well though um i think we i don't know if we talked about on here or not but it's like um uh oh shit um my mind's not working tonight um what what, what's pin the pendulum um Like, I mean, it's one of my favorite stories of his only because it's like this wry sense of humor that Poe has where the protagonist, I guess, in that, um, the, the one that's going to be executed is, and tortured and executed, is, is trying to use all these tactics to figure out. Um, he's using, um, he's like measuring the room by his paces and trying to figure out like the size of the room. And like, he's doing all these different things to try to, learn particulars about his predicament um and it's like how is how is learning the you know area of a room going to save him in this situation um it's like the more knowledge you get doesn't save you from death and it feels very similar in this it's like they're like trying to use everything that they can to you know figure this out and i guess it does kind of maybe help them in the end possibly but um um but yeah, it just feels the same way. Like they're trying to use like all these skills to escape when it feels like escape isn't possible really. Because even like if you get out of this cube or device, like 
the people that made it are still there <laughs> and you know i mean what what have you really gained by any of this um if there's that kind of power in the world um yeah it's funny like when i said the hellraiser thing i started thinking about it it really is just like like if hellraiser was just a bureaucracy right it's like all right like we need to torch you but just you know whatever we don't got the time to be here with our purple prose and our weird sexual <laughs> fetish so sure yeah, she's going in this box she'll be well what's interesting is that when the what's his name originally developed the story apparently it was it was supposed to be hell right um which is which is an interesting comparison like you know yeah to like the idea of how bureaucratic hellraiser yeah. um yeah and um I don't know. I mean, you you know the history of this stuff more. It's like in years since we've had things like, oh god, I get all these horror names confused. Is it Cabin in the Woods? Or yeah, yep, Cabin in the Woods. That's the bure- bureaucracy, like controlling everything. Is that the uh-huh. one I'm thinking of with Bradley Woodford? Okay. Um, in order to save to stop the apocalypse every year, they have to sacrifice people too. Right. So they create the scenario kind of that it's like there's been a couple more like that. There's been more like that, right? Like where it's like it's actually like being controlled in some way. And um Yeah. It's like, is this the first one? Do you know of any like before this where it's like there's some sort of controlled Well, there's part. a really good, really good Clive Barker short story from the mid to late eighties where the fate of the world is controlled by a group of old men who are racing frogs or something i think <laughs> i'm pretty sure that's the idea behind it um but yeah i mean there's like a lot of ideas like that it's just like a game or happenstance or like in the sense of in the part of cube it's that here's this thing that you know some corporation or the government or whatever paid for that nobody's really in control of and they're kind of just letting people go in it just to see like what happens and that's mm-hmm. you know it's like um Desmond on the island, you know, in Lost. It's like I gotta push this button. Right. Why you gotta, why you gotta push this button? Because they right. told me I had to push this button or something right. bad. Yeah. Them. Yeah. Yeah, we just gotta keep pushing these assholes into this cube. Right. See what happens. But yeah, no, okay. I, I I I'm a big fan of this movie. Um personally, I, I think I would this is probably Maybe not the best movie on this list, but it's my favorite movie, I think, on this list. I got you. Um, I understand why you put the other two ahead to some degree, but um, it's it's my favorite movie on this list. It's the one I could think I could go back and watch again. Um, so let me say that there's nothing objective about the list this week in terms of the order. Mm-hmm. It's legitimately just in order of how much I enjoy them sure. personally. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I really like this movie. I think it's worth watching if you've never seen it. Absolutely, um, you know, free and, somewhere right now, right on Prime well, maybe or something. It's on Tubi right now, I think. Okay. Um. Uh, it might have been somewhere else at some point, but um, I think I saw it on Prime. Oh no, it it's still on Prime. Okay, yeah, it's still on. Sorry, that's right. Because I definitely Google didn't. Google has pushed Prime down to fourth. So it's free everywhere right now. It is it is on Tubi Prime, Pluto TV, and Voodoo for free. Um, um, and you can buy it or I mean rent it for ninety nine cents on YouTube if you want to. <laughs> so, easy to access. Um, this movie. Uh, do you want to hear Owen Gleeperman real quick? Um, uh, 
his 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 review of this movie? Sure, we haven't done that in a while. We haven't. No. Um. Okay. Sure, lady. <laughs> Imagine being trapped in a symmetrical metal framed room, a cube with six sliding windows, each of which leads to another identical cube. Some of the adjoining cubes are booby trapped with Hellraiser death devices. This very Canadian thriller, i.e. no humor, lots of literal minded future shock portentousness, certainly does a number on you, though not necessarily a pleasurable one. The experience is more akin to that of being locked in a Skinner box. C. <laughs> C grade. Fan of radio. Um, yeah, dick. <laughs> so, what? <laughs> Wait, it's always a dick. Um, I, yeah. I know, like, we've, like, joked so many times about, like, you know, uh, Dave Kerr and Rosenbaum and all that kind of stuff. Like, those guys are actually super smart to me. I just, like, tend to, like, disagree with, like, a lot of their opinions sometimes. Um, Gleaverman is my, like, my most hated critic. Like, I fucking yeah. hate Gleaverman. Gleaverman's a, a, a complete dickhead. Complete dickhead, and like you know, I understand that like some movies he didn't have a lot of space to write about the movie. Um, because I think his longer reviews are certainly fair to some degree, but it's his writing style as well. Um, it's like everything has to be like so, it's like that last line the experience is more akin to being, being locked in a Skinner box. It's like, do you think Owen Gleiberman could tell you what that actually means? Like, what no. is the analogy that he's drawing here to experiencing this movie and being in a Skinner box? Like, it doesn't actually make it. I, I can't imagine a scenario where you can explain that and have it make sense to me. Isn't it just to make it sound clever just for the... Oh, that's, a exact, I, that, that's exactly right. what it is. Like, so it actually has no meaning. Like, his final... Other than the idea that the movie's not pleasurable. Like, nothing he says has meaning. Um in this review like fucking asshole awful i hate him um <clears throat> all right so now we also have another trend here going frank starting with number four on the list is two three and uh, th like four three and two like all have sci-fi elements to them right like so before we get into number two here like what do you think that's about suddenly it's I would like argue this, that number one. Has, it, it, I absolutely think so, but it's like a little bit more metaphysical, right? Like sci-fi, spiritual, like you know. I mean, but certainly psychological kind of you know stuff going on that could be sci-fi to some degree. You want to do on my honest, my honest assessment of that? Yeah. Why? Why, why suddenly is like the, the sci-fi horror like a thing? Like suddenly this year, out of like all these years, do you think? And I think that science fiction was proving itself to be like a profitable subgenre so in the same way that um in the same way that a uh, scream was able to like bring back a resurgence of horror movies um independence day is kind of pushing mm -hmm. like the idea that sci-fi is super profitable again right mm -hmm. like it's not just some like middling star trek rehash or whatever right. you know you had a 200 million dollar 
box office movie in Independence Day. And so people are like, oh yeah, like sci-fi, like that's that's the hot thing right now. Let's let's make gotcha. it gotcha. So gotcha. Okay. All right. So number two on your list is Event Horizon, directed by mm. Paul W. S. Anderson. It stars Lawrence Fishburne, Sam Neill, Kathleen Quinlan, Jolie Richardson, Richard T. Jones. It has a 29% from critics on Rotten Tomato and a 61% from audiences. Um, so you want to tell us a little bit about the movie, why you have a number two on the list, and at some point kind of address why you think there's that discrepancy um, among critics and viewers, which is, I think, the biggest discrepancy so far on this list and maybe one of the bigger ones we've ever had. Um, so general description of the movie, um, where does it take place? Like 2052 or something like that? I can't remember. It's something, yeah. Like, so at that, at, at this point, it's like 50 some years in the future. Um, it's discovered that this experimental spaceship, which had been sent out to the outskirts of Pluto, um, has suddenly reappeared. And this crew of Ridley Scott-esque, um, James Cameron-esque, whatever, um, explorers is sent um, along with the scientists that created the ship um, on a mission to recover and bring it back home. Um, you find out that the ship was an experimental gravity drive that was meant to do the... Um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is like the whole wrinkle in time slash whatever warp drive bending the universe in half the two pieces of paper like touch each other mm -hmm. so instead of like traveling a distance you're bringing the distance to meet itself and then just traveling like a short span um but the ship disappeared uh, the ship is called the event horizon they didn't know where it went so when they get there all sorts of weird stuff starts happening right away like um People start seeing apparitions of like dead loved ones and um, the machine itself, the core of the event horizon, the gravity drive, which is this fucking like ridiculous, like heavy metal looking fucking device of like spikes and interlocking circles um, comes alive and basically sucks Jack Newsworthy in. Um, and then after that, you know, just kind of like hell starts to break loose, literally. Um, uh, Sam Neill's character turns out to be uh, kind of like the catalyst for it, where he um, he's basically like tempted by the sight of his dead wife into sort of taking over the ship and like being the conduit for these demonic forces. Um Everybody dies for the most part, uh, except for who is it? Two people live. It's the girl, um, uh, medical geez. officer, and then yeah, it's um, Kathleen Quinlan survives, right? And um, it's uh, uh, Richard Buddy, Jones, baby, baby boy, or whatever they call him. Yeah. Um. So yeah, so you get the impression that the evil is still like with them somehow or whatever, even though like it's just sort of like a, a, a false jump scare ending that they then um, play out to be, like the real ending, which is them being rescued. Um, and that the ship had actually gone, like in the interdimensional portal had actually gone into hell. 
and like made everybody on board go crazy. Yeah. Um. So let's talk a little bit about uh, Mr. Paul W. S. Anderson, um, who shares the name with one of the greatest directors of his generation. Um, right, which is why he's um, Paul W. S. And right, as opposed to PT. Right. Um. So this is a dude that got a lot of notoriety for directing Mortal Kombat, um, which was a really surprise box office hit in the mid-90s. Um, not a very good movie, but I think that people look past like the campy, kitschy nature of it because it was based on a video game or like this guy actually has some talent. Um, I'm looking at his... Oh, no, filmography no. now to see if he's directed anything else that's worth watching. And I don't believe he has. He does a lot of um, video game adaptations and weird um, like revival stuff, like the Death Race series that he's he's done. Didn't, didn't you? Is, I thought you liked that Death Race movie. Am I wrong about that? The first one? I don't like it as much as I like Death Race. It's like, it's a different take on that story, I guess. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's fine because it, it, it's better than like this Resident Evil shit, right? Um, which is terrible for the most part. Anyway, long story short, like it's not like Paul W. S. Anderson has like lit the world on fire in the interim since making Event Horizon. Sure, but but he but he's going to direct Monster Hunter with Milo Jovovich, so. That's already that's already out, babe. Is it? Yeah, I thought about um, watching it the other day. Oh, Jesus, right? I don't even like those video games. So I, so I, I wasn't particularly <laughs> interested. Right, yeah. Um, here's the thing about Event Horizon. Like, it it definitely has its flaws. So, again, like the script is a little overwrought at times. Same as with Cube. Um. There's a couple moments with Lawrence Fishburne, of all people in this cast, that feel weirdly campy for no reason. Like, I can't even think of another way to explain it other than that. But, like, it's a combination of, like, the line he's delivering and the way he delivers it. Like, just kind of, it doesn't feel, like, earned or real or whatever. Um... But man, this movie is like, number one, the design of the ship is next to maybe the um, uh, Nostromo in the Black Hole movie, the Disney movie. Maybe my favorite like gothic haunted house style like spaceship. Like that whole everything looks like it has a purpose to it and they kind of explain in like pseudoscience like why the ship looks like it does but it really is just like this great like haunted house basically that these people are exploring um and a lot of that is because you know it's it's really just three principal sets so it's the the gravity drive room which is like a physical thing and exists the hallway between the two um the gravity drive in the main like cabin or whatever, which was a real thing that was built, and then the actual main cabin itself, and then the ship on the outside that they used to get to the um, event horizon, all of which are done in like practical effects. 
I think it's beautiful. I think it's like perfectly realized. I think it's a great combination of like vaguely satanic runes and symbols and stuff and that whole like almost like cyberpunk future um steampunk-esque like design and everything. Um I think it's got some really good like I don't want to say tongue in cheek, but almost like wink and a nod references to things like Doom, you know, which is something that we grew up with and was like pretty influential to I, us as like I, a video I, game. I was gonna ask you about since you brought it up now, let me just ask you about this is like I know that like this originally like had a different script and that like Anderson kind of like rewrote like a lot of it and added a bunch of shit. Um, because he didn't basically didn't want to do Alien, which is kind of like more of what it was like originally. Right. Don't you think this guy just ripped off a bunch of shit from Doom? Sure. And other things too. I mean, Hellraiser. Sure. Yeah. It, it really it's it's a combination of all of those ideas, but I think because he directs Doom 3's trailer and he's in the video games because like, you know, like um you know, like all the movies that he's done, like so. It's like he's definitely a gamer, like you know, that like pays attention to that world. It's like I think he just like sold a bunch of ideas for Doom, and yeah. Which and, again, and, and like, let me say, this is a better movie than Doom is, right? It's much better. I was gonna say it's it's fine if yeah. that's what happened, right? Because yeah. sure, he definitely he definitely does it right and pays it homage, and I think that it's I. I think that the whole is better than the sum of its parts in a lot of ways. Or maybe I mean the exact opposite of that. Maybe like the parts are, yeah. are all so great that they supersede um, some of the, the failings of the whole. Maybe. Yeah. That's what I mean. 100%. Yeah. So it, it looks amazing. It's got some really good performances, surprisingly. Um, Sam Neill is great in it. I think um, I think all the supporting actors do a really great job of like. I'm, okay, so if if you want to talk about what it's ripping off, it's taking the characterization of the crews from Alien and the Abyss, and you know what I mean. Like, oh, we're just like a salvage team that's out here in space, like basically these working class um, space explorers that like space travel is so commonplace, you know, 50 years or 60 years from whenever this movie has taken place that you would have like basically the equivalent of a construction worker in space because you need that person to do that job. Um, and I think they all do a really good job with it. Um, I think Fishburne, except for a few um, few few points here and there does a good job as the captain. Um, I think the practical effects the practical effects are amazing in it, and I think the fact that they don't really use CGI super often in it, and maybe that's also because of the budget, just the you know the year when it was filmed. A lot of it, I think, is like matte painting, um, especially the outside stuff. Like, man, it looks good. And even though it like might be ripping off stuff, so again, it's it's kind of well, we'll say paying homage because I'm ripping off is like kind of harsh, but um, you know, it's paying homage to Alien and 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 to the black hole and to um, the abyss and to Hellraiser and to Doom 
like all of these things combined together that he creates this movie but it somehow transcends all that and it's just its own thing like i i wish that they would have made a whole series of these movies or i wish that they would at least revisit this movie at some point um and tell the story again or tell a similar story because i think it's i think it's super fascinating I think it's really well done, and I think with a bigger budget, it could be. I mean, it's it's crazy because I I saw this movie um, on a day off. Uh, my Frankie's mom, Rebecca, and I went and just like went to the movies and saw this, and went and got lunch, and I was blown away by it. Like I had read terrible reviews, so I'd kind of put off seeing it. Like I think it had been out for two weeks already when I saw it, um, and I was like completely amazed by it because there's just something about that setting like that hopelessness of space kind of where you're, you know, like it's scary. The haunted house movies are scary enough because it's the dilapidated house on the hill on the outskirts of town. But now you're taking that setting and putting it like, you know, hundreds of thousands of miles away from earth, yeah. like floating in space all by itself. Um, that's, that's kind of a horrifying thing, you know? So yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's, I think it's flawed. I don't think it's like a perfect movie, but I think that it's eminently entertaining and really well conceived. And just as a a package, I think it does a great job as a whole, like creating this believable, you know, palpable dread. Yeah. Okay. So I think you ex- everything you expressed is pretty much how I feel like about this movie. Um, I don't feel necessarily the palpable dread, but I see the idea of the palpable dread at least, and I appreciate it. Um, I, I don't feel it like I do in other horror movies necessarily, like where it's like I actually feel the horror. Um, I am, I am still like this kind of like, ob- you know, kind of like a like objective eye that's like outside of it and can't feel it and is like appreciating the elements that are being put together to create the sense of horror for these characters but i don't feel what the characters are feeling in even the slightest um so it's like this weird experience because i didn't like this movie initially decades ago um and i watched it last year because i know you liked it like during COVID and like I watched it I was like okay this is better than I remember it being like there's a lot of things I actually do kind of like about this movie it's the whole package just the total that I don't really like that I didn't like um but there's elements and pieces in all this like that definitely are 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 really solid um and then when I watched it again a couple weeks ago it's like all right like I actually like this movie now I think like so it's growing on me um, the more I see it, because there's more pieces that I find I'm liking and more things as I think about them. It's like, yeah, I really like that element of this. But it's still just like, for some reason, like, once you put them all together, it's like, it just doesn't quite land for me overall, even though I like all of those pieces. And like, so I can appreciate all the pieces of what it's building towards. And it's like, at the end, I'm just a little empty. Yeah. Um, Especially with the damn psych out, like fucking typical psych out bullshit scene at the end. That's like feels like it's like something out of Dead Space, or you know, I mean, like that's that's a really apt comparison, I think. Yeah. Um, and 
I, but let me tell you, I wish they would have let. So, had, I, did you read about this any more about this uh, after I told you about it? That there's like basically like there was an Anderson cut of this movie, which is obnoxious as that sounds. But the fact that we would have be talking about a Schneider cut like in 2020, like, um, is obnoxious right. to me. So, um, um, the fact that there's an Anderson cut that's talked about like of this movie. I would actually be really interested in seeing that. Like the more I read about it, and it's impossible now because basically the yeah. has been destroyed. It's all, or lost. it's all destroyed. Yeah. Um, but I'd be really interested in that because let me tell well, you. Well, no, okay, the, so it is still possible because there's apparently one guy in like Spain. Oh, okay. That has the footage, but Anderson's never made it over there to see it. Hmm. Well. Yeah. I guess that shows how much he cares. Like, um, he's busy making fucking monsters. Yeah, right. He's He's busy keeping Milojovovich fed. Yeah, right. Um, Because I think my favorite thing in the entire movie, and I I agree with you a lot of things you said, and I actually like Lawrence Fishburne like in this movie a lot. Um, And I really like. There's there's one thing though where Sam Neill screams early on in this movie worst acting performance in the entire thing is there's a scream that he gives out that is fucking hilarious i laugh like every, like both times i watched in the past year i laugh because it's awful it's awful scream it's bad acting and it just makes me you know chuckle every time yeah but i like sam neill so i think he's really good um and i'll be honest i'm not a sam neill fan um like at all like i think he's really like a lot of times really campy or wooden um and he just kind of like goes between the two um dead Collins probably my favorite movie of his i guess but um mm-hmm. i was just gonna ask you yeah it's, it's, it's that's that's my i think his best performance that i've seen um you know but i i my favorite thing in this entire movie a very small thing is when they finally like the video footage comes through of right. the prior like crew and stuff like that like what happened to him and you get those cuts like you know with the music in the background and like you know the people like kind of like you know with the latin phrases and like stuff like that and it's like you see the imagery of like just like death and rape and like you know and it's like if you would have gotten like more of like because what it seemed like from what i read it's like as it was being pieced together, you would get small pieces of video, like intermittently before they right. see the entire product. And it's like, if you did more of that kind of shit, like early on, as you're building up to this, like that shit was sick and horrifying. And Wait, like, you know, you know that that was longer. Yes. Like yes. that was originally like a more fully realized part of the film. And um, right. New line. I think this, this movie made him cut it down. Yeah. Yeah, um, which is a fucking. I mean, I guess they're trying to get an R, right? And they because they thought maybe they could get an NC seventeen or something like that because of it, right? Um, or they just got skittish. Sure, but I mean, I, they hired like pornographic actors to play the oh, yeah. the crew. Sure, so it would seem more um, sure. Yeah, graphic and real pornographic actors and like amputees and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, amazing. Like I, I thought, I thought that's the best part in the whole fucking movie. I mean, I, I, I legitimately terrifying to me, like watching it, like because I mean, the first thing, like when I think about that kind of stuff, the first thing it reminds me of, like rewatching it, like last year was um Reavers, 
in oh, um, right. yep. Firefly. Um, conceptually, like that certainly seems like something like where like Wheaton probably got the idea from, honestly, to me. Um, so but, like I don't I I don't admit this much because I think that you you should never show weakness in any form, but um space is like one of the scariest things to me. Like really good space movies, even ones that aren't necessarily horror or even like thriller or whatever, like space movies are super fucking scary to me. And just the concept of like all that emptiness is whatever, it's horrifying. So yes. Yeah, I think I'm I'm much more susceptible. Hence why, like, I love The Black Hole so much. I think even though, objectively, maybe it's not, like, the greatest movie. um, It's just so well done, you know, that idea of, like, really just being, like, lost in the the emptiness of, you know, the eternity of the solar system or the galaxy or whatever the fuck. See, I'm horrified by real space, not, like, fake movie space. Like when I hear like what like like the real thing like real things in space are like those things horrify me when I think about them, but I don't like get like freaked out by like sh- like movies in space or anything like that it doesn't doesn't affect me like a real black like a real black hole like when like you read like what what they know like basically and then what they don't know, um, like do you know what happens with a black hole? Like if you go I, through a black, if you jumped in a black hole, like you know, you were out in space and jumped in a black hole, you know what happens? According to Interstellar, I go to some futuristic library. Yeah, right. Sure. Yeah, it's like so, you're, like you meet the doctor there too, right? Um, mm. And um, so you basically become, you basically like destroy like some sort of like internal timeline. I don't even know how to describe it. Basically, you split in two 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 different people almost, right? So. There, there's the perception of you as a being and then there's the actual being so it's like if say like i am outside of the black hole and you just like leap into a fucking black hole i what i see through the black hole is i see you basically like float away like you know i can still th- see through the black hole and i see you float away and basically i see you burn to death but here's the thing inside the black hole you don't burn to death because time is so different inside the black hole um that like basically like they don't know what happens to you once you get inside necessarily. Right, they, of course they don't. So 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 you you burn to death. One version like the perception of you is that you burn to death, but they know enough to know inside of a black hole that you don't burn to death. They don't know what happens to you though. Like the black hole doesn't cause you to just like fucking burn up like that. But that's the perception from outside the black hole. So not only is it like terrifying that you're basically split into two like almost like possibilities the one possibility besides death is unknown completely and utter yeah, that's, I'm 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 fine with that <laughs> see and I'm much more terrified by that prospect than I am fucking event horizon but see like, the thing <laughs> is, is that there's two of me <laughs> this is the thing that matters so now I can now I can like I'll send the one of me to work because he's already like died and burned up and his life is meaningless anyway. So he might enjoy being at work and then I'm just do whatever the fuck. I, I, I love that you're like, you're still thinking about fucking work like when we're talking about fucking two, two beings basically, two versions of you throw a black hole and you're still thinking about getting up and going to work. <laughs> well, if, if Interstellar taught me anything, I gotta come back anyway. 
There ain't, there ain't no salvation jumping in the black I, hole. I haven't watched Interstellar yet because I keep thinking I'm like I keep confusing with Arrival. Yeah, so. you keep watching the Arrival instead. <laughs> um, um, oh, so before we move on from this, there's one last interesting um, tie-in with this list is that uh uh-huh, uh uh-huh. you got um, it. Paul Anderson is going to direct a TV version of Mimic. He's already yeah he's already done the pilot yeah 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 so I was gonna bring that up. Circles within circles. Like it this. is like Josh Brolin's appearing in two fucking movies. Like you know, fucking Borden All is directing a movie and producing a fucking movie, and you know Del Toro's yeah. being like you know fucking adapted by Paul W S Anderson, and fucking Sam Neill's all like fucking scratched up and crazy. I don't know. Um, shit, I need um. Sirens on a list here. Like we'll talk about mm, that. We don't. We're never. That is never. <laughs> Shit! I need to watch Sirens again and see if I still like enjoy aspects of it, so I can get it on like a May list where it's like movies that Frank hates or is different to or something. I don't think um, I hate Sirens. I think I just don't have any real estimation for it as a movie. Do you like the Englishman who went up a hill that came down a mountain? It's fine, I guess. Which so. is not Sam Neill, but um. Right, I know it's fine. It's what's his name? You Grant, right? Yeah, yeah. All right. I don't care about any of those fucking British movies. Like, fuck them. I feel about those movies the same way you feel about the Ice Storm. It's like Uh, uh, the 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 fucking Brits ain't never done nothing interesting to the arts or whatever. The history of time. So there's. That's a funny claim. Um. Number one. Okay, hold, just, 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 just give me a minute here. Yeah, I, and I and there's part of me. I think she did this shit on purpose, like waiting to like put this number one, so I got to pronounce these fucking names. Um, all right. So number one on your list is Cure, is directed by Kiyoshi Kurosawa. It stars Koji Yukosho, uh, Shuyoshi Yokijiki. Um, Anna Nakagawa and Masato Hagiwara and has a 93% from critics and 84% from audiences. And I know I destroyed the last name of Shuyoshi Yojiki. That's it. Yojiki. All right. So why do you think it is that you have difficulty with Japanese names? Um, they always trip you up. And like you say some weird ass shit from like Eastern Europeans and you're fine, but like well, it's because it doesn't make it, some of it doesn't make any sense to me. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, so, so the reason I fucked up the one is because when I looked it up to see how I pronounce it, I've never seen this last name before, um, is it's U-J-I-K-I. And I would think that's like Ujiki or, U, you know, so I looked it up and it's Yo, the, the U is pronounced as a Yo, Yo-Jiki, Yo-Jiki. Right. And it's like, that's not how like so it's like there's something it's just so foreign in terms of the pronunciation of certain vowels in the placement of inside of the name that it trips me up like people that i'm like comfortable with like you know it's like because of professional wrestling and like you know being like that kind of like fucking mark is like so fucking kiyoshi is a name that like i have heard plenty of times before Kurosawa from film, I have heard before. Koji, I have heard before. Um, you know, 
Nakagawa I have heard in wrestling before. Like, so it's like some names I can do and I have no problem because I know exactly how they're supposed to be pronounced. But like when I find things like I, I've seen Yoshi, obviously, but I didn't know if the TSU in front of Yoshi might be pronounced in a different way than other names, um, you know, because I don't hmm. understand the placement of the letters. Does that make sense? Like when yeah. letters are placed in different points in the name, it seems like it changes pronunciation. So then it's like I'm tripped up because I think it's pronounced this way, but then I find out it's pronounced this way, but my mind's still telling me it's pronounced the first way that I thought it was pronounced. Maybe it's just all the like Asian shit that I watched as a kid and then a young adult. I mean, so I watched I a ton of anime. And, well, yeah, you know, see, I don't. Yeah, right. Super into like not only Kurosawa, but like the. The more genre films like this and, you know, I don't know. It's just interesting to me. Because I don't speak, obviously, any Japanese at all. I mean, I have less problems with Korean, I think, than I do uh, Japanese, though. Like, I think I, I think Korean names phonetically pronounced more like English, though. Yeah, yeah, I think the transliteration is easier in some ways, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what it is, like... um I don't have, I, I think I'm more used to hearing, like, as, like, a, an ugly American, like, in this country, I'm more used to actually hearing Chinese names as well, so I think Chinese names don't bother me as much, even though the transliteration is often sometimes just as confusing to me as Japanese, but I think I'm more used to it. I think in English pronunciation, Chinese names are less phonetically complex than Japanese names. They might be, yeah. There's they're like usually, syllables too. They're usually right? just one or two syllables, right? Sure. Yeah. Right. Um, and it's usually the way that it transliterates. Um, yeah, I think the number of syllables probably also is something that throws me off at times. But like I said, it, that's what it really is: is the in, when inside those syllables, the 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 placement of a certain thing, like a certain like a set of letters inside of the like the syllable, and you know, if it's placed in the second part of a three part like three syllable name is sometimes different than the first and it's like my mind can't wrap the idea that like with those because i'm so different for me although i'm sure there's examples of like speaking english or something like that that um i probably do it all the time <laughs> you know i mean but it's like i for some reason it just like confuses me so now that we've um you know uh, analyzed um my inability to um say japanese names correctly mm. um this is the highest rated movie on the list um, in terms of like the critical and um, audience scores, um, probably rightfully so. Um, yeah. So do you want to tell people a little bit about this movie and uh, why you have it number one? Um, so the basic premise of this movie is that there are people that are being found to have murdered someone that they're um, familiar with or related to. Um, without any recollection of why they murdered the person or the murder itself um, and are usually super distraught by the idea that they murdered the person but can't access their short-term memory to talk about the circumstances involving the murder. Um, police officer uh, who lives with a um, possibly mentally ill but definitely um, sort of like unbalanced wife um, is assigned to the case along with a uh, psychiatrist. Um, they eventually deduce that it's this man, kind of this homeless vagrant. That's the 
um, whatever, like the link between all of these crimes. Um, so they bring him in and you find out that he has the ability to mesmerize people to basically commit crimes um, and then forget that they committed them. Um, the detective is resist, like the only person that seems to be resistant to this, um, whatever power of suggestion that the, uh, the guy has. Um, and in the end, uh, eventually kills the man, um, shoots him. I don't know if cold blood is the right way to put it, but just shoots him like after he's allowed him to escape from prison. Um, and then at the end of the movie, it's sort of implied that he's kind of gained that same power to um, influence people just through the power of suggestion and, you know, the sound of his voice. Um, super oversimplification of what is like genuinely a, a pretty complex and thoughtful movie. Um, it's an interesting, so... In most, Taishi Kurosawa was a sort of an uneven director. Like he's directed some really brilliant movies and he's directed some not so brilliant movies. But when he's on point, I think that there's nobody that's better at taking a very basic idea, like a very traditional horror movie idea, and presenting it in a way that's emotionally and philosophically complex without bogging itself down too far in like the minutia of like what makes that thing complex. Does that make sense? Makes sense. So, Real quickly, can you just kind of like explain like what other movies has he done for people that might not be like particularly like keen on um Japanese like film and horror? So we've talked about two on the podcast. Um he did The Guard from Underground and he did uh Pulse. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also responsible for a movie called Seance, which is pretty brilliant. Um, a movie called Charisma. Um, he did a movie called Loft. Um, he did a movie called Doppelganger, which is really good. Um, I don't know, like what else. Yeah, like, that's fine. Yeah, know. but I, yeah, I, Paul's probably being like the most yeah well-known of his movies. Um, Paul's and Seance both are. And this movie, super influential on Asian cinema and, over the next Paul, like, Pulse is the only one that's ever been remade, right? Like in America, I think, right? Uh, I think, I mean, Pulse definitely was remade in America. Yeah. I, I don't think any of the other ones were, but. Um, terrible, terrible remake. Yes. That completely yes. misses the point of the original. Sure. Um, but sorry, so I, just, is, I, I just know there might be people that aren't in Japanese horror and just wanted you to kind of explain yeah. that he has cre- like credibility like in the genre. You know? Oh, yeah. So, um, Bong Joon-Hoo, Bong Joon-Hoo, the guy that directed uh, Parasite, right. um, last year's Oscar winner, cites this movie as one of the most influential movies in terms of like his own directing style and also... Yeah. considers it one of the five like one of the like whatever x number of greatest movies ever made hmm. um right that's, so that's very cool but i i don't agree with that assessment i think this movie's really good and i think it's got a lot to speak to it but it's definitely not sure. like whatever yeah 
but it's interesting that it evokes that reaction because this is the first movie where Kurosawa is like completely in control, I think, as a director. And it's just telling you the exact story he wants to tell you in the exact way that he wants to tell it. And there's so many scenes in this movie that honestly nothing is happening in that still have this really strong sense of um, danger and like impending doom. Um, and I'll give talk about a couple scenes specifically. So early on in the movie, um, after it sort of revealed like the basic premise of these mysterious deaths, um, where the person murdered someone that they knew and then cut a giant X, like basically from their throat, like down into their chest. Um, there's a scene where there's just this dude on the beach um, sitting with the um, antagonists and they're talking and looking out at the waves. And I was watching and I was thinking like, man, like there's inherently nothing wrong with this scene really, or like this should even like generate any kind of reaction, but it like the way that the look of the beach and the desolation and it just feels like cold and empty and alien almost. And the antagonist is such like just a like a cipher really almost. Like there's nothing to him. And I guess that's the whole point is that he's taking like you and your personality and putting it back on you. That's what allows him to control other people. But there's that scene, there's the scene where the antagonist is in the um, examination room with the female doctor um, and is using the water to mesmerize her. And it's just really, again, like another one that's, nothing's happening in it, you know, and there's no reason why you should think like under normal circumstances, like it wouldn't be anything weird, but um, Kurosawa which is like perfectly controls like the like almost like the air in the scene. So it like feels like the air is being sucked out of those scenes and it kind of almost leaves you breathless, even though really you're not watching anything happen. And the deaths in these, this movie, like you don't even really see sure. like a lot of the violence being committed. You're seeing the aftermath of the violence, which is a brilliant way to kind of add to that feeling of uncertainty with what is this guy doing? to force these people because you see him like you know flicking the lighter and playing with the water and using his um mesmeric devices or whatever to kind of like control other people's perception but you never see the true i don't know what you want to call it, like magic or whatever of the moment um and then they tie it back to uh mesmer um the french whatever you want to call him like charlatan or that's probably not the right way to put it, but the French man that like kind of developed like modern hypnotism and um, these little snippets of things of like whatever, like facts that they find out that point them in that direction and show that this guy was like a university student that learned how to mesmerize people and then all of a sudden um, um you know, started using his power to basically cause other people to murder each other. Um, and the kind of the empty hopelessness sort of the ending, or at least the open-ended um, result that, like, maybe this guy that was sort of the paragon of virtue throughout the movie 
is now just like now that he's found the same power and murdered this guy is just doing the same thing. Um, I like all of that stuff. Like I, I love the fact that Kurosawa is sort of obsessed with the idea of like man's power over the unknowable and how like the unknowable can tempt someone into basically putting their own life at risk or the life of others at risk in order just to find out the truth of something. And you really like, you, you see that in pulse, you know, that's the case in charisma and seance and doppelganger, like all those movies are really great. And it's just part of, um, you know, the way that he does that in such a subtle way where you don't necessarily, he's not like beating you over the head with it, but it still is um, like a relevant point of, you know, all of his movies. Yeah, and then I, and then he doesn't beat you over the head with the explanation either. It's not like, you know, one of my favorite Simpsons episodes, which I think is hilarious, is the um to to eat man joke or whatever, or to serve man. You know what I'm talking about? It's like a it's it's a play on the um Twilight Zone episode where the aliens come to Earth and the book that they have is actually a cookbook. Anyway, completely off topic. But like it there's no like big reveal, like, oh my god, like this is what it is moment. Like it just is always very sort of like subtle and dark and sad and sort of hopeless. To no greater effect than impulse, but it's really good here too. Yeah, I actually like this movie more as a um metaphysical crime film than I do as like a horror movie. Uh, even right, like, yeah. Um I think it's my only complaint, and you can guess what it is about this movie is I think it's over long. Um, I, I I think that it it's too long for the story that it's telling. Um, it's my only complaint. I, I think he's obviously like a master in terms of camera work and tension building and like all these other things. Like I mean, it's 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 an incredible um, what he's what he's able to do. And um, I, but but I like Pulse as like a horror movie, you know. Like I mean, but I right. think I like this. I really see a lot of it, the things that you like that come out of Korea that are kind of horror based to some degree, serial killer based. Like I guess, like I'm trying to think what is, I saw the devil. Oh yeah, like I, but I feel like there's like, and it's interesting that you said that about um, um, the director of Parasite, but that I feel like that movie. Is almost like influenced by things in this movie. Like I saw the devil. Right. Um, like and it's like I, it's so I had two questions come to mind. Like you know, after hearing you talk, like um, one is is kind of around that idea of influence. Do you in two different ways? Like him personally as a filmmaker, Kurosawa here. Do you see that influence spread? Like, cause like, look, I've read about his influences in terms of, you know, what Hitchcock and I think Peck and Paul, like, you know, and like those kind of things, like, you know, um, I think he even had Toby Hooper on his list, but it's like, um, but it's like, I've read about his influences. Do you think his influence, we are seeing his influence in different countries, including America now spread from 97 to 2001 when like, possibly this movie and Pulse and stuff like that. Do we see his influencing spread on younger horror directors? Because it feels like that's a possibility. 
Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at stuff like, um, so a specific movie that I think is probably somewhat influenced by Kurosawa's work is um, It Follows. Okay. In the sense of yep. like the slow build of dread, the emptiness. And I I think that ultimately, and I, a lot of people don't say this, but I don't know how it's not 100% true, is I think that Lynch is one of the biggest catalysts for like modern horror through the 90s, through the 2000s, in terms of the way that he holds shots and film scenes and cares about the small details of a scene and letting it just play out so that you convince yourself that you're about to see something horrible. I, I'm i glad you said that. And I think we had to talk a little bit about this, like in episode one or two or whatever it is of like our top five tape lunch movies which is something at some point like we need to go back to because i think there's a hell of a lot more to say than probably what we did early on in the podcast um it's like i feel there's like a five hour episode to be able to just talk about lynch but i think i think you're right and it's weird that nobody really credits him as being a horror director um because that guy does some of the most unsettling shit that you've like horror wise in terms of pacing sure. and that you've ever seen in your entire life. And just like the camera angles he chooses and the sounds that he uses in the background. And it's like, there's definitely things out of this where it's like, yeah, there's like some kind of like, there has to be Lynch influence there. I can't imagine there's not like, and, and I feel the same way about, um, how oh, shit. What's his name? Gozu. Oh, uh, Takashi Miike. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're like, I mean, Gozu is like directly a fucking David Lynch movie, right? Right, yeah. I mean, like, uh, like... Or something like Happiness of the Categories, really. Like, if you think about it. Sure, yeah, yeah. I mean... But yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Like, David Lynch is like... Like, but I definitely feel like it's there in specifically in Kurosawa's work. Um, anyway, yeah, I just so it follows, it follows a good one. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, yeah, it's not going to be for everybody, and I think definitely it's it's more about whether or not you can allow yourself to be open to the idea of existential dread. Because that's what all of his, like, ultimately, most of his, like, horror movies are about that. And I think to some people, it's just going to be boring, you know, because I think you have to want yourself to, you know, when, when you're sitting there and they're inside the guy's jail cell, it's just, like, that tiny, like, that shot of, like, the dirty water at the bottom of the bathtub, or, like, the debris that's kind of, like, gathered around the base of like whatever the um, molding on the ground it's these small things that aren't necessarily scary but the overall effect like the more you watch the movie mm-hmm. the more you see them where it's almost like creeping into your peripheral vision right because it's not like a super close-up of like the cracked wall or the dirt or whatever it's just it's there and if you see it you see it and even if you're not like directly seeing it you're still kind of like knowing it's there and it just sort of infects like the entire viewing experience. So I, I I think make it 
you know, again, I agree. Is this really a horror movie? Like, eh, like it can be argued no, but. Well, I mean, that's the thing is like, it is very like also lynching in that way to me too, is like, you know, I mean, some of his crime movies, Lynch's, are horror movies to some degree as well. Sure. And I think this absolutely, well, I mean, still, it's all serial killing. I mean, it's a horror movie at that point, like, um, to some degree, like, it's involved serial killing and the metaphysical aspect of all of it and possibly sci-fi aspect to some of it. Like, you know, I mean, like, yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's horror. Like, it's, it's no question, but it's like, I, I enjoy it personally more as like this kind of metaphysical crime movie, but it's like, it's still a horror movie and it's, but it's a horror movie much more in like, I think she had a way than um, yeah. is how we would describe it as Americans, I would say. Um, the other question okay. I have for you, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. The other question I have for you out of this is um, I don't think I'm spoiling anything at this point, like in the next couple of months, like next year we have, basically the beginning of like jr right like as as most people think of it um um with ringu and then it's like the final year out of this we have you know the found footage film you know like with blair witch like so we have like in the next two months we have these like two major like subgenres of horror that like develop but with ringu right like you know and you, because you know about this a hell of a lot more than me. So it's like, I, I'm asking you like out of curiosity, like how influential is like Kurosawa here making things like Guard from the Underground and um, Cure and like these kind of things to something along the lines of like Ringu coming out, do you think? Like, is he just part of the movement? Like, is that it? Like, of horror coming out of Japan? Um, um, is he... He's more of a throwback to... Um, so Japanese horror in the 70s and 80s had become, like, more grotesque and pornographic okay. than anything else. So there's a lot of Japanese movies, especially even around this time, um, I mean, you've got the whole uh, guinea pig series from, like, the 80s, and I guess it's all, like, late 80s. Um, there's the, uh, what are they called? Something of hell. Anyway, tons of shit that's more about, like, basically torture porn in its most literal sense. Um, so Kurosawa is a throwback to the more restrained classical horror of like things like Jingoku and Kaidan and Ugetsu and um, Onibaba, you know what I mean? Like, sure, from... but doing it in a much more modern, right? Right, like, like so he's taking creepy, the... creepy, creepier way, probably. I would say, I mean, well, he's less influenced by like no and Kabuki, which is more of the influence of like those movies. Mm-hmm. Where he's then distilled, like, again, like, Toby Hooper and David Lynch and, like, all these modern directors. And so he's creating, and basically, like, I I mean, maybe you could call him, like, the father of modern 
like Asian horror or Japanese horror? Because like I don't Pulse, Pulse comes out in two thousand and one, three years after like Ringu, like and it's like it feels like Pulse has elements of Ringu and the Grudge and like those kind of things that kind of predate Pulse, like in some elements of the creepy elements to me, like. Well, remember that. So the Japanese were much more advanced than we were in terms of the internet and um, shared media, um, especially in the idea of like what would, what we would now call like an MMORPG or what you would have called like a mud back in the day. Mm-hmm. I mean, their their services to get video games and movies and whatever much more advanced than what we had until like much later okay so a lot of what you might see as being like similar is just based on what's scarier to them or more prevalent in their lives okay which is that thing so it's hard to explain i mean i i I mean is is it it a com is it is it just part i i guess what i'm asking is like you know is so he's not like a forefather of what's coming necessarily. He's part of the zeitgeist. Of yeah, it? I, maybe because he's more similar to um, uh, Hideki, uh, the guy that directed The Ring and um, Dark Water and all that stuff. Like that's okay. more similar. Like, Juan is more influenced by Western horror, I think, because it's more about the jump scare. Even though it's taking, like, the... It's taking elements from, like, the um, the yokai or whatever, like, the traditional Japanese, like, demons or ghosts. Um, it's much more of, like, a Western horror-style movie because it's more about a jump scare, more about... But even then, there still is, like, the reserve, and maybe that's just... Sure, Japanese, right? Having right, is that that ability to hold a little bit back or whatever? Sure, Um, sure, but like, I think that Pulse is probably the most masterful of all these movies, um, just in terms of like its overall impact and yeah, the skill with with which he directs it, sure. Um, or Dark Water, maybe like those are the two, like, yeah. No, I agree. There, there is something more. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's something more artistic about Dark Water and Pulse to me, like than there is The Grudge or Ringo. Yeah. Even but though I like both of those movies, horror movies, like there's Pulse is still like a super philosophically complex mm-hmm. movie that I think requires like multiple viewings to really, mm-hmm. like, truly appreciate. Yeah. Just that, like rich cat i don't know whatever you want to call it like the complexity of it whereas like dark water is brilliant but it's also very much a straightforward story sure about this thing that's happening to this like this group of people so i don't know um but i think the i i I think the curse and i think it's that sense that you you said like building a existential dread though and i think that's what dark water does very well i think that's what pulse does very well even though it's a personal kind of experience like you said in one movie and this more you know metaphysical like experience kind of like you know message in the other movie like i think that's what they both do well so maybe that's where i'm trying to go is like you said just a minute ago like maybe that's what it is to be Japanese or something like that. It's like, so 
like do you see then like so is that really it like it's like the japanese just have a maybe like filmmakers have a better understanding of this idea of like how to that lynching element right that we were just talking about of like you know like how to let dread build like they have a better understanding of that like almost by nature to some degree or yeah and that that might just be cultural just in the sense of like it doesn't have to be about everything now everything immediate you know it reminds me of um that scene in boogie nights where they're all high on coke and she's like i want to go now i want to go out we gotta go out we gotta Mm. do things Mm. and like that's like the american or the western set when it comes to you know i mean like how many times how many people can you have jason kill in a unique way in a friday the 13th movie i mean that was the thing that people cared about whereas it's like i don't know like i don't who knows yeah well, I mean, but it is interesting that it's like, you know, maybe there is like a difference there. I mean, like as much as lynches and the things like transcendental meditation for so many years, that is a more Eastern idea, even if it comes from India, like, you know, I mean, maybe there is something about like an, an East versus West type way of thinking and dynamic at times that, um, um, that Lynch is more like in line with you know yeah eastern like filmmakers um you know probably just because he's more tapped into that that mindset of wanting to challenge you as a viewer on multiple levels as opposed to just like to the point where lynch won't even tell you sometimes like what he's trying to tell you right you know i like i i think that well, Lynch Seriously. does. Yeah, I think Lynch kind of understands what he's trying to tell you ninety-eight percent of the time. But I think there's even sometimes where Lynch doesn't even know what he's trying to tell yeah. you. I mean, like seriously, the third season of Twin Peaks, for all the complaints that it got about like not much happening, is still one of the most horrifying. Has some of the most horrifying stuff I've ever seen on television. Sure, sure. I mean, Fire Walk with Me. I mean, I remember we talked about that. Like two and a half years ago, like, with the Lynch episode, but it's like, Fire Walk With Me is one of the best horror movies that I've ever seen. Like, right. I mean, it's pure, it's, like, I don't care how you, you know, like, I understand it's a prequel to a TV series that was a crime series and stuff, like, it's a fucking horror movie. <laughs> like, not only right. in the way that it's, like, filmed, but it's, like, the fucking story is a horror story. Like, it's a, it's about the possession of a father and the systematic rape and killing of his of, of the daughter i mean like it's a, it's a fucking horror film like and like everything about it is horrific um um as i'm sitting there watching your television like flash <laughs> blue on you right now through zoom like you know like um it's like yeah i mean it's like even those kind of things, like taking the natural everyday things, like much like you're talking about, like the water in this movie, like, you know, there's, there's these natural everyday things that it's like, you see them and it's like, somehow these people like this, like, like Kurosawa or Lynch can like find those things and like see the, that existential dread in them. Sure. And, um, fascinating, fascinating. Yeah. Like, um, so yeah, I understand why you put this 
number one, I don't think I could watch this movie and over and over again, which is what I was saying about Cube, right? Like, you know, but right. I think I could watch Cube more, but this is certainly the best movie, like, objectively to me on this list. Um, might not be everybody's I, cup of tea, but I think it's the best movie on this list from a filmmaking standpoint. I mean, it's the probably the fourth time I've seen this movie, I think. Um, and I enjoy it just as much every time. Um, again, like, I, yeah, like, I, everything you just said, I think, is right, and it's, um, I think it's just interesting because it's it feels so alien and just the way that things are filmed and the way that people speak and so much different than like how we're used to doing interacting with other people in western culture sure okay well honestly none of those movies um talking about in what in any i think in any of the way the directions i like kind of i didn't put a lot of thought into it but in any of the ways i predicted um so um that's interesting um because we really didn't talk about these movies like at all like which so we, maybe we should stop doing that uh, right. so much off air um but yeah so yeah that's 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 interesting there'll be things that i have to think about now yeah. um uh that she said but uh next as we talk about things we've talked about off air but um next week uh we will be doing um we're actually next month kind of like our, both of our episodes are crime related um next week we will be doing the top five elmore leonard adaptations um uh, episode frank and i have talked about for christ close to two years i think off and on um and then the week after that we will be doing the next top five crime films of the 1970s um really excited about both of those lists then next uh, the end of next month we will be doing the top five horror movies in 1998 and then we'll be in october in the fall um suddenly like uh and then we will be covering the top five horror anthologies of all time the top five were creature movies of all time and uh then finishing the month up with the top five horror movies in 1999 completing um the, the 90s list and then somewhere in there we're going to throw in some sort of first watch or something along those lines probably that is horror related i'm assuming um maybe so, huh maybe maybe we'll see i mean we got five weeks like you know we can we can take a we can take a breather sometimes we don't gotta do like fucking four like four out of five weeks like we do mm. three episodes we do three episodes a month like i mean like most months i mean we can take a break sometimes, um, you know, and right around that time, the quick cage will be ending. Like, you know, I mean, we, we could, um, we could have a breather for quite a while. You never know. Got a, um, got a good episode coming up this week. Um, and wait. then November, um, we have for the first time ever, like very special episode, like after school special, um, of, uh, friend of the podcast, Jason Heaster will be coming on. And it'll be his top five movies. Um, it'll be the top five movies involving cars. Is that how it's being described? Um, I don't know. I don't know what the title of the episode is, but I have the list, and um, I am. Um, I have the list, um, and then Frank will be doing his second fresh five of the year, um, the week after that, and uh, episodes I always enjoy where Frank kind of breaks genre year it doesn't matter it's just basically 
top five movies he's watched since the last Fresh Five list, uh, which was in May, I believe. So, um, so I'll be interested in seeing um, that list eventually uh, in November, and then we will finish up the year with the top five films of 1971, 81, 91, and 2001. Um, and that'll be the year. Good year. Yeah. Is it? Yeah, I think so. You mean those years? No, no, no. I think just in general, like what we've done on the podcast has been decent. Oh, yes. I, yeah, I do too. Um, no, it's, it's been a good year. Um, for, all, for, for all the low lights of this year, um, yeah, I'm actually, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, keeps I, me keeps me going a little bit. So, sure, uh, but I gotta I, I gotta pee real bad. So let's. Um, <laughs> are you are, are you telling me to wrap it up, Frank? Is that what you're telling me to do? I'm, but like, instead of like making an AM version, I'm just telling you. You're just telling me. Um, did you try to text me and I just didn't see it? No, okay. no, I was just um, letting you go. I got I got a strong bladder. Oh, okay. Um, so um, so you think it's a good year, huh? Yeah, I think it's been a good year. Uh, huh. Um, so the quick cage is gonna be good this week? I think so. Yeah. Um I know what you're trying to do, but you can fuck <laughs> All right. At some um, point I can we'll, we'll, we'll let we'll let Frank and... go piss. All right. Thank you for listening, everybody. Have a good week. Have a good night. Week life. <laughs>